Welcome to the Riverside Project podcast. We are mobilizing Houston to empower families and transform generations. We hope these conversations will give you a greater understanding of the issues facing our community and inspire you to find your place along the river. Dr. Valerie Jackson is joining us on the podcast today. Dr. Jackson is the CEO of Monarch Family Services. It's a local child placing agency in Houston. Um, it's family focused, provides integrative services all across the family services continuum. Dr. Jackson also leads the Adolescent Center and Mental Health Services. She has a PhD in clinical psychology and has over 23 years of experience working with kids and families involved in the foster care system. We're so thankful for her influence, her expertise, um, and her leadership in this space. So, Dr. Jackson, thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, of course. Well, let's just start off um, by just giving a little introduction. Um, what is Monarch? Uh, Monarch Family Services is a holistic uh, family service agency. So that being said, we work with biological families, uh, or biological parents, kinship parents, as well as children uh, that have child welfare involvement. The unique model that we have is that we do work with um, the whole family unit because mm -hmm. what our uh, theory of change is that we want to keep the family of origin intact yeah. or in place because we, we feel that that is the best home environment right. for a child to be with their biological family. And so um, the start of the program in 2014 was an outgrowth after the adoption of my daughter in 2013. So what I saw during the proceedings of the court case with her biological parents were lack of support mm -hmm. as well as um, discrimination against them because of their age, their mm -hmm. race, and their socioeconomic status. And I felt compelled to be a beacon of hope for those yeah. uh, type of families. And so when I started the Child Placing Agency in 2014, I also started it with the preservation and reunification services. I always felt that if my daughter's biological parents mm -hmm. had received more support and that, fam that family system had received, received the type of resources that were necessary, yeah. that she would today be with her biological family. Mm -hmm. Now, she is doing well and thriving with me, but she is mm -hmm age 12 now and asking questions about where is my father? Where is my mother? Tell me more about, mm -hmm. about them. Do they look like me? Where do they live? And so they have these questions and they have these children that are adopted in unrelated families feel the disconnect, yeah. even though they feel the love and they tend to, to, to heal and stabilize, they yeah. still feel that disconnect. And so yeah. providing answers uh, to that has been, problematic because when she was adopted, uh, there was the closed case mm -hmm. uh, type of action. So once once a adoption or once the, the judge has determined parental rights are terminated and then the adoption will be with an unrelated uh, caregiver, mm -hmm. then cases were closed. Yeah. Uh, families are separated. And the expectation is the child to go on, yeah. be great and thrive with this new family that has been built, built for you by the system. 
Yeah. And so that happens in some cases, but we know of cases where that in as children grow in, in the homes of these unrelated caregivers, um, there's conflict mm-hmm. and we have a unmentioned number of return to care. Yeah. Um, whereas with statistics, when we see um, kinship caregiver, mm-hmm. the, the return to care is extremely low. Right. And children tend to thrive in those those homes because they have a stable caregiver in place that mm-hmm. is a family member, but also they have connections to their biological parents yeah. and other extended family. So when we put it kind of in terms of the river, um, one of the things that I love about Monarch is that you're not just you know midstream of the river where we would say that foster care is, but you've, from its very beginning, really focused on that upstream portion of how did these kids get here and how do we keep them as far kind of working on the upstream side of this caring for biological families, caring for the kinship families, or finding some sense of permanency because we know what happens downstream and we know the trauma that uh, the additional trauma that continues to happen when kids aren't able to be in that stable home family environment with relatives if possible. We always joke, I think, (laughs) about how you were kind of the OG of kinship Mm -hmm. care because um, we're seeing a lot of shift towards that now. um, But you guys have been working on that for a really long time and really laboring towards those types of outcomes. And it's almost like the system now is starting to catch up and see often because of the work that you've done, um, working for 20 years in this space. Monarch is also kind of seen as a kin first. You've used that term before, a kin first agency. Um, what does that really mean? And, and how do you really work with and come around around the um, kinship families that you work with or the relatives um, that you work with? So the there's a story behind the um, beginning of working with kin. Mm-hmm. So we did open in 2014. And uh, as a full service agency, so we mm-hmm. had the prevention services, we had the uh, foster to adopt services, as well as the behavioral health support. Mm-hmm. And so when I built the company it was with the mindset to provide permanency. Mm-hmm. That was the that was my whole intent. I said, we have to provide permanency because uh, I, I am a clinical psychologist. And so I have provided behavioral health and psychological support to children. Mm -hmm. And through the years of providing this support, when I would talk to children and interview them uh, for psychologicals or either for a treatment intervention, Mm -hmm. I would come to the question with, uh, or or come to the question that states, uh, what is your hopes? What is your wishes? What are your desires? And the children would always say, I want to be back with my family. I want to be out of this system. I want I want to feel whole again and peace that I had when I was with my family. And so when I opened the agency in 2014, because I was new, a lot of the first families that would come to the agency or came to the agency were kinship families. And they would tell me that they were turned away from many agencies that did not want to work with them. And they heard that I was new and 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 hope that I would give them a chance. I didn't understand at the time the reason or rationale why an agency would turn a kinship mm-hmm. family away. So I said, sure, absolutely, I'll work with you. And so it started out with one or two in the in the first three or four months. Mm-hmm. And as news to caseworkers 
were was transferred or, or word of mouth from these families that we were working with kinship families, more and more families came to us. And because our original families that that came mm-hmm. to the age of our kinship, we had we our our yeah. program was designed for kinship. Around there. Yeah. And so I saw the needs. I didn't I didn't know how to traditionally work with a foster family. So the whole design became um or the the whole approach was for mm-hmm. kinship families. Uh ironically, when we in the second year when we started getting unrelated families, I had to think about how I would work with them because I'm I was not it's my approach was kinship families. So I was mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, now we have to think about how we're going to work with unrelated families. So I had to do the opposite of yeah. what agencies are doing today. I had to come up with a model for unrelated families because my yeah. mo- my first year model was all kinship families. Yeah. And, and so these are just different. It's absolutely different. And when I hear that um, policies and practices are are the way it's it's worded is that it's kinship and foster care families. I already know that that is uh, um, trying to fit a square into a mm. circle because it's it's so it's different. it's significantly different when working mm-hmm. with both families. You cannot yeah. work with both populations the same, and yeah. so there's no such such you know thinking or there shouldn't be Mm -hmm. such thinking that because I know how to work with a unrelated family, then of course um, I can go ahead and use that same model with a kinship Mm -hmm. family. Our kinship population is majority low socioeconomic. They're unprepared for the circumstance that Mm -hmm. they are in, meaning that they get a phone call are notified that a family member is in, uh, chi- in, in involved in the system and they have to make a choice if they're going to take them right then and there or this child is going to foster yeah. care. And so it's a split decision, uh, unplanned, yeah. untimely. Some families are uh, have some idea that this was going to happen, but mm-hmm. majority do not. Yeah. And the child comes and then it's now what? Mm-hmm. Now we got to think about uh, what school they're going to. What did they come with? Did they come with clothes or not? And how we're going to get that met? How are we going to financially provide in the interim with mm-hmm. no funding in place to feed the child, to yeah. get them connected to to Medicaid for their medical needs and their right. dental needs and their behavioral health needs? So it's a lot mm-hmm. placed upon the caregiver. And that's only if you have a child with mild behavior needs. Yeah, if they've experienced a lot of tra- And it's a lot harder. Yes. If they have been through traumatic situations Mm -hmm. and and more or less when I think about traumatic system situations, I I think about the trauma that, yes, they do experience with the abuse and neglect in the household, the biological Mm -hmm. parents. But I've never seen trauma as severe as system trauma. So if they already have been cycled through the foster care system, that trauma doesn't even compare every transition to every move. Yeah. The trauma that the, that children that have already been cycled through the system. And now we've identified a kinship caregiver and then the child is placed there. Statistics say that the, the PTSD, that symptoms that are seen in foster children are two times mm-hmm. as severe 
as those seen in war vets. Yep. Two times as severe and much harder to treat. Yep. If ever. Yep. Able to treat. And so we're talking about war vets that are on the front lines, seeing death on a, on a daily basis. With a developing mind, you know, with a, de- with with a, a, f- with a not fully functioning, with a full functioning mind. Right. And the PTSD symptoms that we see in children that are in foster care are at least two yeah. times severe than those yeah. those men and women that are fighting for the country. Yeah. Back to my anecdotal uh, <laughs> interviews with children that are in fo- have been in foster care in my hat as a clinical psychologist, they don't, most of them don't even talk about the reason for removal Mm -hmm. as being something that was the most hurtful thing that happened to them. Yeah. They talk about the removal. Being removed from the situation that they knew of, Mm -hmm. it was normal to them. They didn't feel they were being abused. They didn't feel they were being neglected. They learned how to adapt to the situation and survive. Yeah. And then the system involvement happens. They're removed from their families and never some of them never seen again, separated from their siblings, never to be seen again. That is what they remember. And that's what they focus on as the most harmful, hurtful thing that's happened to them. And the challenging thing there, I think, too, is that being able to see the situation not from their perspective necessarily. So the system's looking at it and saying this kid can't necessarily thrive depending on the situation. We see the things on the news. We see the things that are horrendous. Right. And so there, there are reasons to take a kid out. And one of the things that we, um, with the river analogy, we're able to, to see it as, is this a a situation where this, this kid is drowning and for whatever reason, this family in the river is drowning. When do we take the kid out away from the family or when do we wrap our arms around the entire family? And I think that's what we're kind of shifting towards as a system or as a society is the hope that we're seeing not just get this child out away from the family, but how do we actually come around the whole family unit and get the whole family out together? And hopefully the majority of the time we can do that if we have the resources and we're working together. Um, but I think that's the shift that we're talking about, moving away from that, um, just looking at saving the child out of this, you know, situation. Like I said, sometimes there are situations where they have to be saved out of things like that. But a lot, the vast majority are situations where if we could come around the whole family and keep them together, what you're saying is we can mitigate a lot of that extra trauma that happens, right? Let's go back a little bit on and just talk about what's the difference um, between informal kinship, right? Kinship families, relative caregivers who are caring for their family members all over the city, right? That mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's CPS involved. So can you speak a little bit to the difference between the two and do you work with them kind of in the same way or what are the differences between the two? If you could just give some clarity to that. By definition, informal kinship caregivers are not CPS involved. Right. Informal kinship caregivers do have, um, well, the child has mm-hmm. an active case right. with CPS. So informal kinship caregivers make up the majority mm-hmm. of kinship care. And so this is when um, they have voluntarily taken in a relative into their care and it is unsupported. Mm-hmm. Unsupported means that there is no state funding in place for the child's care mm-hmm. by the kinship caregiver. Right. And so 
that population specifically needs the most resources, yeah. community-based, uh, organizational resources in order to continue the care of the child. Mm -hmm. And so because it is voluntary, there's no placement of right. uh, or involvement of a system, then they are able to, um, you know, just maintain there yeah. and, and everything's fine. But in a lot of cases, we see that a disruption with those homes because there's limited resources. There's mm -hmm. no connection to uh, services or don't know how to access services. And so, um, yeah. though, so kinship navigation programs have really, um, been helpful mm -hmm. in those um, in those situations. Now, yeah. Texas is slowly getting on with providing kinship navigation to informal mm -hmm. caregivers. Um, other progressive states, such as Ohio, have developed. Not only have they um, have a robust kinship navigation program, they've pulled research from their programs yeah. and found. Uh, how to implement it effectively. Yeah. And since that is the largest unsupported uh, population, then very um, connected kinship mm -hmm. navigation programs are necessary and needed. Yeah. In yeah. order to also minimize the possibility of system involvement, right. because that's what happens when they break down the system, the the child welfare system has to become involved because there's yeah. no there's no guardian right. now in place. Yeah. Um, and we've done a lot of work together um, mm -hmm. over the last couple of years on um helping those families that are formally involved with this CPS system mm -hmm. to get through the licensing process. Um, I know a lot of families just kind of or people out in the community don't fully recognize that when a, a relative caregiver steps in on a CPS case, they don't have the same resources that um, you or I who stepped into foster care willingly, voluntarily. Um, we went through that long process, right? Got licensed. And then we were able to receive funds to care for the child in our home. Mm -hmm. What many people don't know is that when a relative caregiver steps in, if they don't go through that same licensing process that a foster family does, they just say, yes, I'll take my, my child mm -hmm. in. They may be eligible for certain um, types of resources just for a short period of time if they meet certain low-income requirements, um, but they don't access the same types of um, resources that foster families do unless they go through that same foster care licensing process. And so can you speak a little bit to that? We've done a lot of work trying to help families get through that. We're hopeful that some of the legislation will shift this mm -hmm. um, session to make it a little bit more accessible. Lots of kinship families are stepping in, but to put them through that same really long, um, arduous process when they're already family members of the child, you know, we know that it may not be as necessary. So can you speak to that a little bit just so that um, people kind of understand what's happening there and what, why those needs are different? Sure. That's that circle into a square. So yeah, the Title IV-E, which is the federal waiver that funds foster care, mm -hmm. has, has stated that a kinship caregiver must meet the same licensing requirements as an unrelated family. Mm -hmm. And so in order to, and so in other words, in order to draw down funds from the federal funds, the states must make it a requirement mm -hmm. that the foster families have the same exact checklist for licensing standards as an unrelated family. In most cases, that is unrealistic. Yeah. Because again, we have a family in crisis. So you're trying to um, first meet the basic mm -hmm. needs of this family so that the child can be 
be start the stability process yeah. in that home. Uh, and not just the child, it's the caregiver too. Mm -hmm. And so child welfare t does pay a lot of attention to the child, which is great, but there's a caregiver that yeah. is also in crisis yeah. as well. And so, um, so stabilizing that whole household. And then, um, and then what happens is that they they start meeting these people uh, in their lives as the caseworkers and and the the casa workers and the guardian mid items. Mm -hmm. So all these people, and now we push a list in front of them and say, "Hey, you need to get licensed." Yeah. And so the, the list is the, the CPAs that will help facilitate that process, yeah. which is overwhelming. Together. And usually the kids are already in the home. So kids, with the, foster families, they go through that process they go through before and they a have child to prepare. Yeah, they have time to prepare. Yeah. There's no preparation. It's the kids like in on, the home. Kids in the home. So on top of everything, yeah. now you're told that in order to get supported, uh, to, in order to get supported in this, pro financially supported in this process, you have to, to go through this uh, licensure um, yeah. uh, procedure. And so it is a lot for them. It is a lot, and and but luckily there is discussions as of February 2023 mm -hmm. that yeah there has been a mandate or a proposal rather that states will be able to eventually mm -hmm. uh, uh, come up with their own kinship regulations yeah but that is further down the line and many discussions yeah have to be. Um, you know, have to happen. And so, uh, but it is at least a, it's, it's at least a glimmer Starting of hope. There. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That, well, we at least know that the federal government has recognized that it is unrealistic for, yeah. um, for kinship caregivers to go through the same exact process as an unrelated family who is actually having time to plan right. for this. Yeah. Um, and so that is, fantastic that mm -hmm. that this is happening yeah. and so we are um and so now we're in a position to have discussions around the table as as a state mm -hmm. what is going to be reasonable a yeah. reasonable standards for uh kinship caregivers to meet yeah. and, and i'm hope i'm hopeful that i'm invited to that table yeah uh, considering so um so yeah so that's where we are with that yeah. and um, there's some other ideas being tossed around in the interim mm -hmm. in order to help um, help more kinship caregivers become yeah. um, a supported home by uh, by having mm -hmm. uh, foster care and adoption funds in place yeah. to keep them stabilized. And a lot of the community, you know, most of the people that we talk to in churches that we're saying, hey, let's step in and, and care for the vulnerable families in your community um, and just passionate people who are saying they find out about foster care. These are the types of things that most people just don't know, you know, when we mm -hmm. talk about there are kinship families in every church around the city. There's kinship families in every neighborhood across the city, uh, many of whom are sliding down into the water and need that connection and support and relationship mm -hmm. to see them, to appreciate them and to say, hey, we can help you carry this. But what are some things from your perspective that um, the community can do to step in and to care for those families? They can't necessarily get them the things through, you know, government resources or those mm -hmm. necessarily those services. They could probably connect them to certain things in the community. But what do you feel like are the best ways that communities, churches, neighbors, you know, can can do to care for those kinship families, whether they're informal and not involved with CPS mm -hmm. or they're those formal um, CPS involved families? What can they do? First and foremost, um, I feel that more um, general population needs to be educated about kinship yeah. because still present day, when we say child welfare, foster care is the first thought. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So more education um, mm -hmm. 
around the community about kinship care, the benefits of kinship care, yeah. and why we need to support the family of origin. Mm-hmm. So I I encourage mm-hmm. those to to get educated about kinship care. Yeah. Kinship care in the in the realm of child welfare and yeah. uh, and also being the the beacon of hope for these children and families. And I actually did a research in 2020 uh, about what support looks like to kinship caregivers. Yeah. Like what is what does that look like? Because when we think about support, most people think oh monetary or mm-hmm. or, or maybe um uh buying food. Well, in the research that I conducted with a population of kinship caregivers, um, looking at what social support and how they would define that uh, Mm -hmm. for them. And a large majority uh, felt that social support was a phone call, checking on them, seeing seeing how things are going, letting them vent about their situation. And when they do voice a need, that need being met immediately. Mm-hmm. So a large majority of my sample did not say money as one would think. Mm-hmm. They said just knowing that someone is there. Yeah. Knowing that it's called enacted social support. Knowing that I can access it yeah. when I need it. Knowing it's there mm-hmm. is what I is what that relationship. Over, over overwhelmingly of what the um my sample yeah. had um endorsed. That's good. Relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, as we close out, we always like to ask, what's a what's a story of hope and healing for kinship families that you've seen or or maybe just anyone within maybe it's a biological family or um, what's a story of success for Monarch um, that you've been able to experience and that you've celebrated as a team? I would have to say it would be with my older um, my older grandmothers Uh, when I say older over the age of 60 grandmothers when they come to the agency they're very um uh, by, by the time they come to the agency they are they don't have much hope yeah that they're going to get through the process are and there there's a lot of fear that the mm-hmm. children will be removed from their home because they're older and and they don't have the resources what i have trained my intake from the point of intake is to show compassion Mm-hmm. Show show that this is a beacon for them mm-hmm. and that we will do just about anything to make sure that they're successful with receiving the supported permanency that they desperately deserve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so getting that grandmother from the beginning of that process with intake to licensing them yeah. to finally getting to either the adoption are the permanent managers, managing conservatorship uh, court uh, date. Yeah. Is the smile and the tears is worth it. Well, we're really grateful. Um, I love working alongside you guys. I have asked you many, 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 many questions. I've called you many times saying, hey, we came across this kinship family. Can you help me sort this out? Um, In many ways, you're leading in this field. Um, You're leading our community in this field, um, bringing that awareness to the needs of kinship families and Honestly, I believe that our system here in Houston would not be the same without it. I see it every day. And so we're grateful for you and for the work that you're doing. And we're grateful that you shared your time with us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. To those listening, we hope these conversations have inspired you to find your place along the river. And we welcome you to join us in bringing hope and renewal to the city of Houston. 
If you'd like more information on how to get involved, please visit riversideproject.org and submit a contact form. We'll see you next time.